0: The People's Theology is brought to you by Creek Tea. Now, Creek Tea sells, well, you probably guessed it, tea. And right now, you can use our code TPTPODCAST at the Creek Tea website, creektea.com, for 25% off your entire order whenever you order. That's 25% off your entire order when you use the code TPTPODCAST at the checkout. If you've been listening to The People's Theology recently, then you are familiar, probably exhaustingly so, with the themes and questions that we've been wrestling with. Mainly, why is the world the way that it is, and what do we do about it? In the last few episodes, we've interviewed or explored different people who have been startled, or grieved or frustrated by these questions. And so they committed themselves to answering them. These are folks that come from different places and experiences. But as I was listening to you and reading their stories, something started to stick out to me. I started to notice something interesting, which is that each person went through a similar kind of journey to use a cliche piece of language. They went through a similar kind of process to get where they are today.
1: It starts
0: with a set of questions, an experience, a wound, often a need, one that you've experienced or that you see around you. And that leads to an attempt to answer those questions, deal with those wounds, address those needs. So, for example, why is our neighborhood so segregated, and what do we do about it? Or why does the evangelical church pick more fights than it reconciles, and can we change it? Or why has the church lost a robust kingdom imagination, and can we cultivate a new one? In each instance, there is this question that arises from a need or an experience or a desire, but then it leads to something. And in each person, it led to tension. Or maybe the better word would be, it led to resistance. When the person who sees the need attempts to address it, when they get their hands dirty, or maybe when they push deeper than ever before, something tends to push back. Some other force, reality, system. Something resists the change. We saw this in our last episode where we explored the life of John Perkins. He sets out to teach the Bible, but quickly realized the need was bigger than Bible studies. So he started the jobs program, work development, construction companies. He encouraged the community. And there was resistance and tension to that and in the tension trying to answer these questions Perkins learned something bigger than he ever expected and realized that his work needed to be bigger more robust to deal with all the needs of the community the people needed a bigger gospel than he had come prepared to deliver That was a hard moment Perkins had to see the inadequacy of his gospel story But in seeing that it was too small, Perkins quickly realized there was a bigger one, an even better one. And that always seems to happen. We have a question, try and answer it, and then in doing so, realize that the answer is more complicated or bigger than our question anticipated. So we have to go back. Reevaluate, rebuild, and each person that we've interviewed has had a similar kind of moment—some prophetic back and forth of questions getting bigger answer than expected. But here's the thing: if you are paying attention,
1: that back and forth that never stops happening. New needs beg new
0: responses. So we push even deeper. And every time that we push deeper into an issue or a problem or a need or a question, we experience new resistance. As Perkins chooses to push deeper, he experienced deeper resistance. Resistance in the system. Resistance in the people. Resistance in the silent and complicit churches who ignored and perpetuated the issue. And that revealed a bigger answer that challenged his very framework, his ethics, his Theology, even. It's that back and forth, that struggle between what I knew and what I was taught and what I'm experiencing that makes up the life of a Christian who is choosing to live on the ground in the real. The question for us is what happens when our framework is
1: challenged? What happens when we don't like the big answers? What happens when we're forced to reevaluate? What do we do with that?
0: My name is Johnny Morrison, and you're listening to The People's Theology, a podcast exploring theology and culture like they matter because they do. In this episode of the People's Theology, we are continuing our conversation, pushing into our same questions, and I hope getting a glimpse or maybe an opportunity to experience that back and forth of life on the ground and in the real questions of our moment. To do that, we're going to be talking to Leonce Crump, who's a former football player for the New Orleans Saints. He's the founding pastor of Renovation Atlanta. He's the author of the 2016 book, Renovate. But more importantly, Leon says,
1: uh,
2: I like to be known as a human being. <laughs> and I mean that in earnest. Uh, you know, I've, I've been married almost 13 years. I'm a father of four. Um, and I think if I'm known for anything, you know, when, when the book closes, at least... Uh, on this side of eternity, I hope I, I'm known for being consistent uh, with my love for people and love for the gospel, uh, and and a genuine desire to to see the kingdom in uh, broken more in this world. And so if that happens through my book, if that happens through Acts twenty nine, if that happens through preaching, uh, when that happens through relationships, uh, that would be the way I'd prefer to be known as as someone who is just deeply passionate. Uh, about this future, you know, eschatological promise that we have uh, actually being reflected in our world.
0: I first met Lance at a conference some seven years ago and have been a fan ever since. Now, part of that is because of how he speaks. A lot of it is because of the way he leads. Honestly, a big part of it is just his sense of style, which is on point. But most importantly, it's because of the kind of person he is which I think you'll get to experience throughout this conversation. And what you'll get to see in this conversation is a glimpse of this kind of back and forth that everyone who is doing hard work on the ground gets. You'll see his theology develop, his picture of the gospel get bigger, and in all of those places, as he tells his own story and pushes on our theological understanding, what I think will happen is a challenge to our own system. I think we will be forced to reevaluate some things. Our boundaries and our imagination will be pushed on, which I think will lead to something so good if we're willing to listen. If we're willing to have the same kind of courage that we see in Leon's and go to those kinds of places. So, with all of that said, what's the first thing? What's the first question that we should ask? Well, I think it is quite literally, what is the first question, right? What is that thing, that moment, that need, or that experience that challenges us to press a little deeper, to reevaluate our frames? I
2: would say 2007, uh, it was my first trip over to Cambodia, and of course, uh, I went under the typical missionary auspices, you know, we're going to go over, we're going to build some stuff, we're going to see some kids, we're going to pray for them. I'll mm-hmm. preach. We'll call it a day. Uh, and I had some rather transformative encounters over there uh, with a few monks and and with some children there, <clears throat> and um, and was compelled to want to move there actually, mm-hmm. uh, and and really live among those people and love them and and serve them any way I can. Uh, and that was a big shift for me. You know, um, I realized in that time that everything that we were doing in the Western world uh, in our strategy to quote unquote, reach people with the gospel uh, was very short-sighted. And, and it really wasn't uh, the way that Jesus did ministry. Mm-hmm. And so uh, on that trip to uh, to Cambodia, uh, I found myself digging into the word and really getting a view of, of incarnational ministry, uh, and, and all of the attached promises to that. Right. Uh, when you read the book of Matthew, <clears throat> it is all about the kingdom and it is all about, uh, this inbreaking breaking reality. And so I started asking myself the questions, you know, Jesus is preaching about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. Well, What are the promises of the kingdom? Well, it's not just eternal life, although that is the great promise of the kingdom. Uh, But the promises of the kingdom are that the sick will be healed, and the lame will walk again, and the hungry will be fed, and uh, death will be no more, and mourning will be no more, and crying will be no more, and war will be no more. And so that led me to another set of questions, like why then is this not central to the identity of God's people, if we are supposed to be the the realized sphere of a good bit, as much as we can be, I guess, of the future promises of God and the work that he's doing to renew the world and to reconcile the people to himself, then how is this not central to the way that the church exists and functions? Yeah. And and so from that moment, you know, uh, I guess almost 12 years ago, uh, that thing rooted in my heart and it's kind of been growing and blossoming since then.
0: See, that feels so central to me, what Leon's just said. He has this experience, this like really cool, amazing church kingdom experience that requires him to ask a new set of questions as he evaluates his own church experience. And specifically, the big question underneath it all is, Why is this amazing incarnational work not central to the identity of God's people here? Why isn't it?
2: Yeah, I I think the biggest piece, uh, which I I, want to be gracious in, is moving out of the modern era and kind of moving into postmodernity, there was a, a, a significant shift towards a circle the wagons mentality so you know you had nietzsche and others challenging the foundations of christianity in ways that it hadn't been challenged in generations and so there was this wholesale retreat from culture and this wholesale retreat from uh, from the sciences and uh, this wholesale retreat And this is uh, the last piece here from the social nature of this gospel proclamation because uh, it was being co-opted uh, and reframed and reformed in a way that said, you know, doing good things is the gospel. And that's just not true. Uh, but the gospel is not the gospel uh, without an understanding that it has horizontal reverberations that come from that vertical uh, truth in that vertical reality. Yeah. And so I think that's what happened. It, it was an overreaction to, to, uh, you know, the in between of modern and postmodern thought, uh, and the social, quote unquote, social gospel that, that turned the movement of Jesus into doing good things in the world, which does not make us distinct people, uh, in how we live and, and in who we are. And so I think there was a wholesale retreat and overreaction that then produced, you know, all types of tributaries off of, off of that thinking and off of that decision-making that are still going, you know, uh, with, with uh, Dr. MacArthur's social justice paper. uh, It is, it is written to a reality that doesn't exist anymore. And, uh, And, and it really is fairly tone deaf with respect to what those of us who are proponents of a more realized kingdom gospel are actually trying to accomplish.
0: On the ground, in the real. Needs challenge systems. Needs ask us bigger questions and demand bigger answers than we've often provided or often come equipped with. And as Lance is answering those questions and developing a more robust theological system, he is experiencing resistance. And we'll talk more about that resistance and other resistance later in the episode. But the first piece of that is like a theological resistance a knowledge resistance, where there is no system for thinking about real needs and the real answer to those needs in the American evangelical church. We lack a robust imagination. We need a bigger one.
2: Yeah. So, broad scope. Kingdom says that there is a future reality in which all of the things that currently plague humanity no longer plague them that that's my reductionistic version yeah. of that and so chief chief is sin, right so so my heart reconciled to God, but then you got to move out and say, but what has sin caused? well, sin has caused poverty sin has caused uh, uh, sexual abuse sin has caused uh, patriarchy sin has caused racism, sin has caused classism and and so to believe that you will preach at that, and then enough hearts will transform fast enough to to kind of change this reality in the world uh, is not only a farce, but it's short sighted. Uh, And so that's where it lands in the local church uh, or in the church broader. And then we'll get to the local church. So in the church, more broadly speaking, then there has to be a theological understanding that uh, if if Johnny's a racist and, and Leon's is, Uh, An ethnocentric African American And and they hate each other That those two guys Just getting transformed Still doesn't deal with the problem Of concretized racism in America Mm -hmm. Uh, Because Those individuals Who had the sin of racism in their heart Transported that Individual sin Into a group sin And then that group sin was then concretized In systems and structures And so We can still call it sin. You know, I I agree with Dr. Piper, who's a friend and a mentor uh, over the years, that yes, the root of racism is sin, but it's no longer just individual sin because that root has birthed a tree of systems and structures. And so all of these individual ideas have been captured and concretized in laws and, and in rhythms and in cultural mores. And so those things have to be undone as well. And that is a part of the church's role. Uh, it, it's not an either or, it is it is preaching passionately the gospel of reconciliation with God uh, on a Sunday morning and preaching passionately the, the gospel of reconciliation with man, which plays itself out in macro and micro ways uh, so that the church becomes the sphere of as much as we can, of course, this realized eschatological reality And then the local church contextualizes that realized eschatological reality uh, in the place where it is planted by carrying that gospel uh, and the fruit of that gospel into the problems caused by individual human sin in the context in which God has planted them.
0: I love the language of spheres of the kingdom, or as Leon's also says, a realized and contextualized eschatological reality. Meaning we live out this hope on the ground. This future reality is expressed in us.
2: Yes. Because, because we're called ambassadors. Second yes. Corinthians 5.20 What does an ambassador do? An ambassador goes as a representative of another kingdom and establishes an outpost that is reflective of that reality. Yeah. And somehow we've missed that. Yeah. Somehow we have missed that. And, and and I think there's a lot of causes to that. As I said, you know, the circle the wagons mentality, but I, I think there's been a marriage as well between um, Western individualism yeah. and Christianity that has produced this baby of the modern evangelical church. And
0: the evangelical church, has rarely had the framework to engage the questions and issues and needs that Lance is talking about. And that's a kind of tension, but it's not simply a theological tension. There's a real resistance that this theological framework makes real that it covers up and that it empowers.
2: Man, uh, we're at the point of turning over tables (laughs) Uh, with respect to many of these things.
0: And that leads to the second big question, which is when the framework is too small and the structure is giving resistance, what then do you do? Well, you have to push. We have to get our hands dirty, flip some tables, and reconnect our theology to ethics.
2: How we have divorced um, ethics from theology, I'm not sure, because the Old Testament, if you if you go through the Old Testament, uh, and I've dared many of my friends to do this, what you will find is that most, if not all, of God's judgments are not about individual sin. Mm-hmm. They are about ethical misrepresentations of who his people are supposed to be because they are covenanted to him. Yeah. And, and so for me... Uh, my personal belief, not personal belief, let me take a step back from that. I believe we've been shown very clearly through the scriptures uh, that a healthy ecclesiology doesn't just teach people the Bible, it teaches them a biblical worldview. Uh, And that by uh, instructing people on how to engage uh, in these broader uh, uh institutional and sociological issues from a gospel perspective rather than uh from a sociological or humanistic perspective then we take back that that prophetic place that the church is supposed to hold when we speak truth to power i mean every, every one of us reads dietrich bonhoeffer you especially in this little reform corner we we read dietrich bonhoeffer and he is venerated uh but we forget that the man was literally fighting for what right not not just individual gospel transformed people but but really f- facing down uh the 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 uh, Nazis and and what was happening in his nation. I mean, this is you know th- this was much bigger than him just discipling someone one to one, and um, and I think the church has to really push to return to being a prophetic voice. Uh, in the marketplace, in the culture, speaking truth to power. Uh, And one of the primary ways we do that is by training and releasing our people, Ephesians 4, equipping the saints for ministry, uh, back into those spheres uh, so that they know how to digest CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and put it up against a Biblical paradigm and a biblical worldview and a kingdom mentality and say no, no, no This is what is true. And and now I'm going to activate that truth and the choices that I make Uh, I mean, how powerful would it have been during the last election? If the church refused to have both of those people No, we will not have him and we will not have her Uh, and this is why And, and I wonder if if the Western church could live as the ancient church did under Nero, under Trajan, where they just had to opt out of the political process because they knew that not only did they not have hope there, but that it very well was working against their desires and against their ends. And so they had to really become a true counterculture uh, in a way that subverted the empire uh, through the way the people lived in these kingdom colonies, in these kingdom outposts, uh, and became an uncontrollable movement, not because they secured political power, but because they subverted political power through Jesus' love and, and through the proclamation of the gospel and, and through being a third way uh, in, in a very rigid uh, um, and authoritarian governmental situation
0: we're not Christians in Rome. In fact, we're Christians on the other side of the Roman conversation. Not the persecuted church, but the powered church. So what does it look like in modern America where evangelicals hold quite a bit of power? I should say white evangelicals hold quite a bit of power. What does it look like to push against these frames now, these deep stories?
1: Yeah.
2: So the, the reality is knowing the American story and and mm. and let me address that with a story. So I'm in a conversation with my mother-in-law and she genuinely has a pie in the sky view of American history. And she says one day, uh, you know, man, I just wish we could get back to the good old days. And that captured everything for me. Uh, and I was feeling particularly antagonistic that day. And so uh, I said, "What good old days were those? You know, this is make America great again. well, when when was it great? because because in my meta-narrative, when I work back to the 80s, we were dealing with redlining and housing crisis. When I work back to the 70s, it was uh, a job market that was not ready to receive ethnic minorities. When I work back to the 60s, it was a civil rights movement. To the 50s, Jews were, were as little received as African Americans were. To the 40s and the 30s, the Scotch and the Irish uh, were not yet white. Uh, at that point. Uh, and they populated as many ghettos uh, as African-Americans did. And when I work back to that, is Reconstruction, where we had a very brief period where there were Black governors and senators and, uh, and over 2,000 Black legislators directly uh, following slavery. And then I work back behind that and there's slavery. So please tell me, when were these good old days? Oh, and I'm, I skipped a step, sorry, between Reconstruction And Jim Crow, uh, um, a terrorist organization called the KKK was released in order to beat black people back into submission. And so I said, so mom, you got to help me understand. When were those good old days? Because in none of those eras could I have even married your daughter and even been partially accepted in the nation that I call home. And of course, there's stark silence part of the way that the church combats is parsing out the difference between Bible knowledge and biblical worldview. And in order to have a biblical worldview, you have to be at least to some minimal degree, a historic. And you have to know these mediating narratives and these sub-narratives. And you have to understand not just the institution, but what was underneath the institution and, and why those things existed in the first place and why they were able to be perpetuated for so long and why men like reagan are not the heroes that they have been uh venerated as in our nation but in fact were some of the worst human beings uh to not only ever lead a nation but probably ever to live in one uh and and how all of those things have come together to to form this false image of america i mean i'll I'll be honest with you brother uh and and i have never said this publicly so today is the day uh there are times that I feel more sorrow in my heart for poor white folk than I do for poor black folks, because most impoverished or oppressed African-Americans and other ethnic minorities, too, but let's just say African-Americans, because that's the primary narrative of America. Um, they don't really believe the dream. They don't believe the. They don't believe in the American dream. They they don't think they're gonna go from from the hood to a penthouse. They they are just trying to make it. But when I was pastoring in Sevierville, Tennessee, every one of those people in every one of those trailer parks truly believed that if they worked hard enough and did the right things, that one day they would realize their American dream. Uh, when in reality. Uh, We have existed from the inception of this nation in an unspoken caste system uh, that is not unlike that which exists in India or Nepal or other places. We've just upheld ours, not through law or through fear most of the time, uh, but through a false narrative that makes people believe that they could ever truly work themselves out of their circumstances. And we have just enough anomalies to point to and say, see, he did it. Anyone can do it, but I am one of those that people say, oh, this race conversation, look at look at Pastor Leon's, he's made it, he's educated, he's, you know. Uh, but there were a series of providential and intentional things that had to happen for that to be my reality. And most people never move far beyond the ground in which they sprouted. And so in order for the church to actually address these things, then we have to be at minimum uh, historically informed enough to know really what America is and really what the West as a whole is in order to address the reverberating effects of so many choices over the last several hundred years.
0: Before you listen to any more of this podcast, just think about the things that Leonce has said. Maybe even rewind it back three minutes to the beginning of this last conversation, this last question, and let what he says really stick with you. For a lot of us, this is a moment where we have to decide what to do with what Leonce is saying. He's pushed into needs into experiences, into realities. He's asked hard questions of those realities. And the answer is, they might be bigger than our systems can handle, or they might be more difficult to process than our system can handle. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what do we do with that? Because the, the sad truth is, we could ignore it. We could disbelieve it and continue perpetuating the very thing that Lance is naming, diagnosing, and pushing against. Or we can choose to reevaluate our systems to let those difficult answers reshape our very question so that we might then
1: push back in further. But you need to know that if we choose that, the resistance doesn't
0: go away. It gets bigger and stronger.
2: I mean, it it has gone the way you might imagine it would go, brother. Um, You know, there was one particularly um, difficult season in the life of our church, uh, wherein we lost about 150 people uh, over the course of five months. Mm. Uh, If you can imagine that kind of bleed out, (laughs) uh, it it is... um, it was devastating. It was devastating for our community. It was devastating for me. It was devastating for my children. They lost friends. I mean, there was, uh, there was a lot. But but the flip side of that is that we have formed disciples of some 30-plus different ethnicities that comprise our church um, that will multiply disciples that are the same. and and uh, And so the effect has been multifaceted. It has been painful at times. But it's also been wonderful at times when I have young white kids come back from Christmas break and they're like, hey, uh, I had this conversation with my dad uh, over Christmas and he repented for raising me in racism. And he said he wants to get better and he wants to read this book. Oh, and also he's a deacon at XYZ Church, which is one of the largest churches in Nashville. Hey, you know, I had this conversation with my dad and he's an elder here and he's held these things in his heart. And so those stories. Keep me going, <laughs> yeah. you know. And, and the others. Hey, my dad threw a turkey at my head. Thanksgiving. That is something. No, a, a, a young man literally. My dad threw a turkey at my head and said that I had been brainwashed by that N-word preacher oh, down man. in Atlanta. But uh, what it did do was give an opportunity to at least face that, yeah. uh, to to have that moment, to meet it with truth, to to speak prophetically. Uh, and hope that the Lord will activate that word in due season. Uh, so that's how it's gone for us. And and we've expanded that corporately. You know, we, we host forums on gentrification. We we we've hosted forums on the LGBTQ plus conversation and how a conservative church can healthily engage the conversation. Uh, um, we have community partners uh that range from Uh, preventing sex trafficking to legislation for for protections from sex trafficking to aftercare for sex trafficking to uh, abortion care pre and post you know so so we are working these things out communally and kind of figuring it out as we go Uh, and there's a lot of freedom there when you have a solid theological undergirding there's a lot of freedom there to be able to do that because Uh, You don't fear as much crossing some line that you don't know exists because you've taken the time to work out the theology of the thing Mm -hmm. uh, before you begin to try and, and put the implications of it into practice.
0: The more you push, the more resistance you experience. But that in and of itself might actually reveal that the work that you're doing
1: is good and right. But it will be hard.
0: There's no doubt about it. And so the question that I wanted to end on with Leonce is the question I always want to end on with everybody, which is, do you have hope? Do you have hope for the local church? Do you have hope for this movement that we're a part of? Do you have hope for the thing that we are trying to do? And then I just really loved the way he framed it up.
2: I have to feel hopeful Hmm. because my... My theological convictions will not allow me to believe that the church is not the hope of the world, mm-hmm. uh, and and when I look back through church history, though the sins are often different in different forms, the process is always the same. Uh, new movements are birthed; they see exciting growth and fruit; uh, they get comfortable in acceptance. Reformers rise up to call them out mm. on those things. Persecution comes because varying cultural things shift or legislation changes. The reformers lead the church through the winnowing. And then she is reborn as new wine and new wineskins. Um, and I have to believe that or I, or I quit tomorrow. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just going to let you know. Yeah. Uh, I have to believe that. I'm done tomorrow because, uh, you know, not not patting myself on the back, but, you know, I'm I'm a decent businessman and uh, and I can go make a lot of money and be a lay elder and and pay my tithe and more and let the other people deal with that uh, and uh, and I promise you, if I ever cease to believe that the church is the hope of the world, uh, then that's exactly what I'm going to do. And and I can trust his proclamation over. Over his people, and and if he said in in Ephesians chapter one uh, that the church is the fullness of Christ, mm-hmm. then then damn it, I gotta believe that the uh, that the church is the fullness of Christ, mm-hmm. and and so I cannot give up on her. I, I cannot give up on her, uh, yeah. um, and I have to keep fighting for her to be what she should be, which puts me in in, in very difficult. Situations. I mean, I, you know, um, another way that I've been impacted just personally since you asked earlier is um, many of the invites that I used to enjoy have dried up because uh, I am a dangerous acquaintance mm. uh, because I am not going to placate the Western narrative and uh, and then of course it's opened up new opportunities because uh, because the. <laughs> I guess the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend in some of these circumstances. And so I get invited to places I never thought I would get invited to. Um, and that I have to go in and and of course critique them as well because I'm an equal opportunity <laughs> profit. <prophet>. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, it, you know, it's been a real interesting couple of years to see uh, who has leaned in mm. and who has pushed away. Mm.
0: I love that. Because I often feel that. You know it's easy to be disappointed by the church. But I have to have hope in her. Not because of what she is or what she isn't. But because I can trust what Jesus said about her. And because what he said is that the church is
1: the way he's working in the world. So I have to have hope.
0: Part because I hope in him, and in part because. Well, where else would I go? Now, that doesn't mean that the church has to stay the same. It doesn't need to change. It does. It does. And Lance and Atlanta is actually doing some really cool things in order to take the local church to a place of deep love and embedded rootedness in his community. So I asked them if there's a way for us to support it, to join with the work that he's doing there in Atlanta?
2: Covet your prayers. Uh, We have an ambitious goal. Um, You know, right now, average church attendance, which you well know, is one to twice to two times a month Uh, in Atlanta is about 6%. Everybody has this misconception about the South. (laughs) Uh, That's just not real. And so we would love to see that rise to 15% over the next uh, um, 10 to 15 years. Uh, through church planting, through strategic partnerships, and and of course, through the evangelism of God's people uh, from the local church. Uh, So that is our big audacious goal. And and everything else that comes out of that is related to that big audacious goal. And so I I would ask that people pray. Um, If you are a church planter and you feel called to church plant, uh, I would love for you to reach out. We have a residency here. Uh, to train and send out church planters. Uh, if you have been put in this world by God to make money, to give it away to the kingdom, uh, I would love to hear how you would want to contribute to this effort, particularly uh, planting and uh, the Center for Human Flourishing, because I believe that's going to be a game changer here in the city of Atlanta. There's not really a, a faith-based wholesale community services um, uh, um entity here in the city that is still and this is the one big caveat that is still deeply rooted in the church there's been several parachurch organizations that broke off to do great things and many of them are our partners but we really want to see something deeply rooted in the church uh kind of take front and center uh, in this work so that we can display what the gospel looks like uh in action when it's not good deeds equals the gospel but that the gospel is a transformative message that has implications for how we live our lives and, and, and how we engage social justice. So, if, if, you know, if you are a benefactor that is interested in those things, uh, please go to Made for More uh, on our website, renovationchurch.com forward slash for More. And then, of course, uh, if you feel called to be a part of transcultural church planting and transcultural church life, uh, move to Atlanta. There's a, there's great opportunity here. Uh, and I believe that God is doing something. I believe we're in the midst of a uh, of the beginnings of a revival, and uh, and there's an opportunity to be a part of that. Yeah.
0: I can't tell you how thankful I am for the opportunity to have talked with Leonce. As you hear his story, my hope and prayer is that all of us would reevaluate our frames and our systems that we would allow his words to challenge our small questions and our so often reductionistic answers to those questions so that we might live into something bigger and better, a bigger and better kingdom ethic. The People's Theology is brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information about who we are and for more information about the show, check out our website at missioyutah.com. Thank you for listening. If you would, go rate us on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. It helps more people find the show, and it makes me feel a little better about myself. But more importantly, would you share this episode with someone? Not to condemn them or to judge them or to one-up them, but to lead to a conversation, to open up space, to help you both ask a better question so that you might live more like Jesus? that we might act more like the church. Thanks for listening.
2: you cussed first by the way that the church <laughs>
1: <laughs> you to be safe you'll be totally safe